Hi guys, welcome to Shogun Mirimoni, episode 82. And I'm Shogun here. I'm glad for you guys to be joining us on our new uh, format here. But please do not be alarmed. Mike will be returning this episode and we'll break down episode two of Euphoria. Because um, obviously I really enjoy what we did with episode one. Um, but we got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about before that. Um, one of the things I do want to talk about real quickly, uh, here in New York, I just want to pay my respects to Crystal Byron Nieves, who was a young lady working at Burger King down in um, Harlem, uh, around 116th Street, who was gone down in a robbery. I wanted to talk about her because... Um, oddly enough, a couple of weeks before um this happened, I actually got stuck at 116th Street due to the MTA. This part will be very New York centric, so it might put off people who don't live in New York from coming to New York. But at the same time, it may actually speak to a lot of New Yorkers with you know the type of stuff that is going on here in this city, and you know in a pandemic. You know, obviously, a lot of people weren't, you know, out and about, and now they are. So, you're seeing a lot of things, uh, you know, on the subways, on the streets that you'd never seen. I've been in, living in New York since 1999, and some of the stuff I've seen since I've started, you know, regularly use, using the subway, I had not seen at all in the first 22 years I've been living here so here on my 23rd year like I like an outside to you know the movie Joker you know or Gotham City before like Batman came around it's like really that wild but I was actually stuck on 116th street I had to get your uber in order to get home up here to the Bronx and I was actually waiting for the Uber in front of the same Burger King that this young woman was killed um, in this robbery. And thankfully, they found the person that killed her, oddly enough, because, you know, this fool, I guess, like, they recognized him from, like, his iPhone um, headphone wires, like, how he wore them in the video. So they matched up, like, all the different surveillance cameras in the area and kind of tracked them down. So... Shout out to the NYPD. Very few times I'm going to give them any credit for that, you know, for, for anything. But they did some good police work there. Um, Another thing that happened just recently, um, as I'm recording this, a woman in Times Square was shoved and in front of a train and, you know, killed. So it's crazy. It's just wild in the city. And, um, you know. We talked a couple of weeks ago about like the mayoral election and, you know, Eric Adams has like, you know, a lot of work to do in trying to clean up the city. And, you know, as much as, you know, I'm, I'm holding police accountable, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, they don't keep on using excuses and bad police work to kind of absolve them from, you know, doing their actual job which is protecting the city i mean especially um a couple of weeks ago when like the vaccine mandates came into play uh, a lot of people had to you know decided not to work 
um, in lieu of getting a vaccination or, you know, keeping things in New York, which, you know, we definitely or at least I definitely try not to do on this show. Um, but I have to talk about it. And I, especially with sports, I try not to um, go too crazy with my local sports. But I think the New York football giants, um, I have to talk about them because <laughs> essentially our um, national nightmare is over as far as Giants fans are concerned because Dave Gettleman was fired last week. Um or let me say he was retired. He was allowed to retire. And Joe Judge was fired after two seasons recently. So, yeah, I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about them for a little bit and actually just give my thoughts because it's very, it's a very intriguing situation. And, you know, I, like I said, I've, I've, I tried not to get too much into my personal sports team um, because I do recognize that people listen to the show don't live in New York, so they obviously probably don't care about the Giants, or you you don't care about the Giants, and, you know, there's people in New York that listen to this show, and you don't, like, you know, the Giants aren't your team, so you don't really care, Um, so that's why I kind of try to, you know, keep the sports, or my, my own personal feelings on sports off the show, but I really uh need to vent and talk about the different things, so um if you're a fan of the Giants if you're not you know it should be an interesting conversation um you know or some interesting um little rant I'm gonna go on and also later on in the show I'm kind of noticing something a little peculiar in this new um you know movement in media and the arts where there's a lot of representation but I'm finding um a certain staple of you know major media is enduring through you know this great change where we're starting to see a lot more different uh groups and and ethnicities and religions and um sexual orientations being represented in media i'm I'm, but i'm seeing something that's kind of enduring and you know i'm gonna give my thoughts and it might be a little bit um polarizing um to some and some might actually you know if you really listen to me you'll kind of get the point where I'm coming from so first of all you know let's get into the Giants and talk about you know the as I said our national nightmare being over and I think about midseason it was being reported that Dave Gettleman was not going to return as GM and a lot of us breath, you know, you know, we're able to breathe a sigh of relief. And, you know, essentially for the rest of the season would kind of tell whether or not, you know, Joe Judge would remain as coach of the team. And, you know, as a fan, I've seen a lot of people just rejoicing and being happy. But I really think you can't give a team too much credit for doing basically the obvious thing or the most basic things like you really have to start giving them credit when you start seeing certain change um so i'm gonna have to move you know that make a analogy to another one of my favorite teams so again i'm you know 
doing what I don't like to do on the show. You know, you look at the New York Knicks, um, you know, they got rid of Phil Jackson and promoted Steve Mills and hired Scott Perry. And you kind of rejoiced in that, but you really didn't see any, like, changing as far as, like, culture and winning, you know, with them. You know, they hired a coach that I'll admit, you know, I was very, very high on in David Fitzdale, but he ended up not being the best coach for the situation. Um, that He was dealt, and I mean, a couple of weeks ago, like, he was coaching the Lakers, and, you know, they kind of had, like, the worst – one of the worst stretches they've had this season amongst, like, some pretty bad stretches. So, I think we're kind of seeing that, you know, David Fizzell probably isn't, like, the greatest, like, X's and O guys. Perhaps maybe, you know, his his relationship with, with players is pretty great. So, I don't know, maybe, like, he's not meant to be a coach. Perhaps he's meant to be, like, a front office guy or maybe even, like, an agent. Either way, it's neither here nor there, but, you know, I say that to say that the Knicks moved on and they hired Leon Rose, who, you know, ironically enough to what I just said, like, was a former, well, at the time he was hired, he was still, like, a player agent, and he's taking his team, he's hired, you know, probably the best uh, choice of coach. A lot of people were not too excited about Thibodeau's hire. Um just because, I mean, like, as Knicks fans, where we were, you know, everybody knew, like, you know, Thibodeau, 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 and, you know, obviously, like, how his time in Minnesota didn't really, like, mesh out. They brought him in, and last year, coach of the year, Knicks 41-31 and 31 in a 72-game season, fourth seed in the East. Obviously, the playoffs didn't shake out the way we wanted obvious you know but fast forward you know so far this season we're three three and oh against the Atlanta Hawks now so uh with Mitchell Robinson playing but it really took like results and kind of like um you know some tangible evidence that things were going to change and that makes me circle back to Joe Judge where I think Joe Judge came in he said a lot of a lot of the right things. Um, he sounded very confident. He sounded, you know, very motivated to do well here in New York. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't really pan out that way. I know last year we kind of hold him, um, you know, hold him in a high regard because the NFC East was garbage. I mean the. Washington Redskins, well, the Washington football team won the division at seven and nine, and the Giants were miffed about missing the playoffs at six and ten. When you know any other team at six and ten, you know you're already you know looking at mock drafts. Um, so we were kind of like jaded by the the you know this this taste of this playoff um, spot or this division title that kind of would have. Uh, would have kind of been earned, but it wouldn't have been deserved. Uh, and then fast forward to this season where the team has looked uh, very unmotivated, um, very overmatched when they play other teams. I was actually a bit astonished. You know, our record, final record was 4-13, and, and I, hard, I found it amazing that we won four games. 
So that just speaks to, you know, my attitude as well as my, um, you know, subjectiveness towards um, this franchise that I love and I follow. And, you know, I've always, I've never really been a fan of Dave Gettleman. I thought it was a very uninspiring hire. Um, you know, I was one of the people I was really hard on, like Jerry Reese, to, um, in his post-Super Bowl 46 tenure. Um, obviously, you know, benching Eli for, like, Geno Smith, like, was definitely, like, the, the straw that broke the camel's back with a lot of Giants fans as far as he was concerned, but um, it was a move that had to be made. And, you know, in retrospect, seeing how Dave Gettleman was treated on his way out and the way Jerry Reese, the general manager and the face of the front office for two of our most recent Super Bowl wins, uh, how both were treated, especially with Gettleman's record. as a GM, it's kind of insulting. I mean, I've seen a lot of people go with, like, the race thing. But, I mean, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. In a league that doesn't really hire minorities, especially African-Americans, um, to be in those type of positions, um, they gave Jerry Reese an opportunity. And he might be the most successful if not one of the most successful at least in championships african-american general managers and you know wellington marrow or if if he was still alive but at least john marrow and steve tish they were the ones that hired him hired him and gave him the opportunity um you know his detriment was just that he didn't build he built Super Bowl winning teams but ironically he never really built a sustainable winner but to see how like he was unceremoniously let go like I think uh with you know a handful of games left uh when he was fired and Dave Gettleman really getting to see um this very very like uninspiring season to see him like see it through um it was kind of insulting so but I I, I don't take like the the racial um connotation of it because again like very few african americans get the opportunity to run a front office and jerry's was like afforded that opportunity and you know he has two super bowl rings to show for it but you know he's not coming back though i wish he were to be fired um mid-season yeah obviously and you know i've been saying and i've been tweeting for weeks now when it was um, put out there the fact that he would be staying for the rest of the season it was very disheartening because to me I feel like if he's sticking around um, even though he will he knows he will be fired and they know you, you know he knows he won't be coming back but they know they're not bringing him back it had me to thinking that perhaps like he will have say in who's the next GM and Honestly, I feel, you know, up until the last few games, I I believe that was definitely the route they were going. And I think the route they were going was to go to a, you know, familiar place and um, going back to 
when Gettleman was hired. You know, he was the guy that worked in the front, front office, I think, during the first Super Bowl. I mean, not the first Super Bowl, but, you know, the Super Bowl 42. And then went on to, you know, run a front office and put together a 15-1 Panthers team um, that went to the Super Bowl. You know, obviously lost. But, you know, not too long after that, like, he wore out his welcome there and he was let go. And for some reason, the Giants said, oh, well, you know what? He took a team to the Super Bowl recently and he's family. So let's bring him back. You know, let's bring him back. And obviously it has it didn't work out um, point blank. I don't have his record in front of me. Um because like I, I actually knew it off the top of my head, um, but it was just so pathetic that, and this season was so pathetic that I just lost count. So I know what I, the number I have in my head. Like it's even it, the final number is even worse. And going back to Joe Judge, there was a lot of reports that you know he was held in high regard um, and ownership. And it's an interesting thing that like the Giants they kind of like. Um, a partnership, but the ownership is a partnership. So it's, you know, half the mirrors, half the tissues, and, you know, the, the faces of, you know, those families are John Mara and Steve Tish. And apparently, like, Steve Tish wasn't a fan of Judge like the rest of us. And John Mara just was, for whatever reason. Um, you know, Judge worked on the Alabama um team with uh Nick Saban and then he also went to New England won a couple of Super Bowls as like their special teams guy um which is interesting because outside of like Adam Vinatieri uh which was like the first few Super Bowls the the, the Patriots got that uh George Judge was not on the staff for there's nothing spectacular or significant about the New York the, the New England Patriots special teams. Um, so they definitely had him in high regards and thinking, you know, there was this quote that John Merritt thought he had his Bill Belichick, um, which is something I'm talk to talk about in a moment. Um, but the last few weeks have been of the season were completely embarrassed. Um, I'm be honest with you, I stopped watching games for a while i had actually been working sundays and i really didn't even check the scores i didn't even care and even one or two sundays i'd been home i was probably watching like you know indiana jones on like paramount or something rather than watching the giants play that's just how down bad the team was and i think that part and especially the fact that uh, I think two of the last three games were home games and John Mara, obviously at the games saw the response. And I think the final game against Washington where they basically got their ass handed to him again, and they actually got their ass handed to him a couple of weeks ago from the bears, which is ironic because they actually own the bears pick. I think he he that that was probably like the turning point, if anything, where it was just like, yeah, I think uh this once great franchise. I mean, I always used to talk to to my friends in college because they were, you know, when in Pittsburgh, oh the Steelers have the most Super Bowls, Steelers this, Steelers that. And I'm like, you know, the Giants have more NFL championships, and it would always be like, eh, 
what the hell does that mean? Like, who cares? Those are like from the forties, but I'm like, all right, well, you know, they didn't just start playing football in 1967. Like there was like a championship before and then the Giants actually have like third most NFL championships. So, you know, I say that to say that like the Giants were a once proud franchise and um, did reach laughing stock levels of, you know, the New Orleans Aints, you know, where, you know, people were showing up to the games with paper bags over their heads. So Joe Judge, you know, maybe one day he'll be like a great coach. And, you know, I know a lot of people uh, with the Browns, you know, another franchise where, you know, they're kind of like, you know, the the depths that the Giants were or have been falling into, you know, could be, you know, lumped in with the Lions and the Browns. But, you know, people joke about, you know, the Browns letting Bill Belichick go and, you know, the success that Belichick eventually had with the Patriots, um, which is fine and dandy. But, I mean, if you look at Bill Belichick's, like, record with the Browns, you know, if it was 1994, you'd say, you know, all right, this guy has to go, you know. And with that being said, like, Joe Judge had to go, man. Like, he, like I'm not saying, like, guys have to, you know, as a coach, like, you have to railroad your players, like, after the game. But to sit down and be getting beat, like, 29 to 3. And then talking about, you know, you like the way you guys competed. I, I mean... You know, you're lying to everybody. You're lying to the fan base. You're lying to the players. You're lying to the media. You know, to what end? You know, and if you feel like you know those type of games are, you know, is your team quote unquote competing? Those type of performances seem acceptable, and there's really no bright spot or thing to to look upon. Like, oh, this is culture, and you know, I'll be honest with you. I think culture is like the worst word to enter like the sports lexicon ever as far as I've been following it because culture is just like this intangible word that people just used as a reason as to why like certain teams are you know trending up and why certain teams are trending down or stayed down when in fact it's just you know in reality it's wins and losses like if your team is winning a ton of games like you know, that has nothing to do with culture. That's that has to do with you know, the, you know, coaching, development, talent, um, and chemistry, and uh, you know, all that good stuff. So, with you know, like I said, you know, Joe Judge, you know, we could, you know, Joe Judge could, you know, with the Giants could be Bill Belichick with the Browns, and Joe Judge could go on to another NFL team and probably be supremely successful, and everybody could laugh at the Giants. But today, as of, you know, January 2022, I could say, like, it, it was the right move. It's just somebody that was just not the head coach or the right head coach for this team. And Dave Gettleman, you know, last game of the season, uh, him and his family out on the field. You know, I'm not saying the guy needed to be tarred and feathered, you know, and ridden out of town on a horse while you throw trash at him. But I don't think, like, you know, his tenure as Giants GM, you know, warranted him 
being able to like kind of ride off in a sunset and have you know this moment on the field with his family he was simply not a good gm um he was very backwards thinking or something to move on and i'm glad i both are gone because i think the giants needed a completely clean slate um me personally i'm not sold on daniel jones and i actually would love it if they moved on from him as well but i do recognize that if you told me that you could take away two but two of the three but you had to keep one you know daniel jones is probably like the most um like the most palatable because uh for one i don't ex- you know no matter the head coach no matter the gm i don't expect the giants to be good next year so you know giving daniel jones one more year to kind of prove himself to be uh nfl quarterback um and this is kind of the thing with me i know a lot of people feel like you know giants fan are harsh on him um you know some people might look at my twitter and be like yeah like you're harsh on him too but Daniel Jones, while he is talented and shows um, flashes of being, you know, a pretty good NFL starter, um, it's not like when he is on the field, like this is like this, you know, second coming of Steve Young, you know, this guy's like a future MVP in the making. If that were the case, then obviously a lot of people criticizing him for his you know, durability or lack thereof would be warranted. And listen, man, football is like a hard sport. The guy puts his body on the line. So, of course, like he's going to, you know, get nicked up a lot. But, I mean, even when he's healthy, you know, I've seen him play some very awful, you know, crunch down football and, you know, being the opposite of clutch. And, you know, there's a, plenty of games, like I think he's lost for the Giants so again I'm not sold on him but you know of the three people you know because obviously NFL franchise your face is your GM your quarterback you know the three most important people is going to be your GM your coach and your quarterback and to me I think the the Giants needed to clean house completely but Daniel Jones I could give him one more season because you know uh he you know, he, he was injured. Um, He's still relatively young. So perhaps if he could go out and play a full 17 games or um something close to 17 games and put up, you know, a really, really good year, you know, with an actual really good offensive coordinator, um, with an actual good coach. And, you know, the Giants look competitive every time they play because of him you know, that would be great. But, you know, if he goes out and, you know, he misses half the season or he does play and he's turning off the the football, he's turning over the football in the most, like, inopportune times, um, you know, the Giants could definitely break up and have a clean break. And the reason why I say, like, um, of the three, he's would be the most acceptable to uh, bring back is because, you know, you know, draft isn't full of, you know, these great NFL QB prospects. And on the trade front, it's like, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, those guys are going to come at like a high price that, you know, a Giants team that I think will probably be rebuilding probably won't be there. 
you know, I'm a huge Saquon Barkley fan, but you know, if they, you know, it's, it's really very few people on this team where it's just like if they traded him tomorrow, you know, I was heartbroken when, you know, we traded Odell. There's literally nobody on this team where, you know, if I got an alert on my phone saying like Giants trade this guy, Giants trade this, Giants trade that, like I would be heartbroken. So, like I said, I'm not as overly excited as a lot of Giants fans, but I do feel like this is, you know, a step in the right direction. I just hope, like, they hire a really good GM or at least um, a GM that's going to come in and take them out of their comfort zone in, like, a good way, where it's just like, all right, we need to establish a new identity and, you know, move this franchise, you know, into the 21st century. And I also would love to see, you know, great new head coach. I mean, you know, I'll jostle with the idea in my head of like, man, I wonder if like Spags would, you know, after being like extremely successful, you know, pretty successful as a defensive coordinator with the Giants and then, you know, successful as a defensive coordinator with the Chiefs, would you look at him as a head coach? But then I have to rate myself back in where I'm like, yo, I'm thinking I'm doing exactly what um, John Mara has been doing, where it's just like, yeah, I, I, this dude won us, his defense won us a Super Bowl in 2007. So I'm thinking like, you know, if he's running the whole show in 2022 on, you know, he's going to be successful. But, you know, I think the encouraging thing too about the Giants is like, they're, I haven't seen a head coaching candidate yet. You know, so they're kind of going methodical with it, where it's like, let's bring in a GM, and then the GM's gonna probably, you know, perhaps even in the interview process, they're probably asking a GM who's, uh, if you we hire you, who's some coaches that you would target. So we'll look out for that, um, in the next couple of weeks and see how that goes. All right, so last week, we last week we me and Mike we discussed um some problematic some problematic movies that we still love and it was interesting because one of the movies we brought up was West Side Story and it's interesting because this new West Side Story that they just brought out it obviously tried to right some of the wrongs of the original you know which we talked about where they essentially was doing brownface um where they made up like uh white and European or white European um and white American actors to portray Hispanic people and Latin, you know Latin people in the original um where one of the only like actual Latino people in the original um West Side story was you know Rita Moreno who Nicely enough, was actually included as like a totally original character in this new interpretation directed by the great Steven Spielberg. So I'm not knocking Steven Spielberg, but I found it interesting that, you know, this movie was meant to be um, set in kind of like the slums of New York during the 1960s. And obviously in the 60s, you couldn't really have a movie with mainly minorities. So that's why, you know, kind of um, accepted the fact that, you know, they, they kind of had this retelling of 
Romeo and Juliet, but it was set in um, the slums of New York City in the 60s. So what they did was have, you know, these, you know, kind of weird saying like immigrants from Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico is America. Um, but, you know, these Hispanic outsiders moving into this white neighborhood and, you know, these gangs like fighting over the territory, um, so on and so forth. And, you know, it's meant to be a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. You know, the old, you know, essentially these two feuding families, the Montagues and the Capulets. And the thing about that is the Montagues and the Capulets, like neither one of them held like uh, an advantage over the other. Like they were both like noble families. So I think if you set a movie in the slums of New York, like obviously like the cops probably hate you know, both gangs, but who are they going to side with? Obviously the white ones, because the cops are also, you know, white. So they probably see their children and these kids. And also what made me think like, perhaps like the original idea for West Side Story was probably to have, you know, African American male and a Latin female or Latin male and African American female, because, you know, during our time, um and even up to today like in new york like african-americans and you know um or blacks and hispanics live amongst each other and we you know we um coexist in the same communities um that's why like you know a lot of my friends are also you know black and hispanic uh mix so i find it like ironic i've never really seen too many like you know uh white and you know hispanic caribbean people um you know forming relationships the only time i've really actually seen it was probably in west side story um so obviously this movie continued with um or this new interpretation has basically the same story uh ends basically the same and you know it's meant to be progressive because now they've embraced the the latin part of it where you know is essentially like a white written movie with caricatures of you know latin americans but it did kind of like upset me that they did remake the movie and it's like it's a certain trope that keeps that that's still enduring um today especially when, you know, last summer we, you know, there was plenty of conversation and dialogue about representation and um, various groups being seen and having, you know, being represented in media. So a couple of years ago, casting was announced for Little Mermaid and they actually got Halle Bailey um, of Chloe and Halle to play Ariel. So, She's, you know, African-American and she's playing a mermaid and she's playing this this mermaid that was white in the, you know, original cartoon and probably in an interpretation of the original fairy tale. Um, they got this African-American girl and it's a diverse cast in all different aspects, like, you know, Sebastian, of course played by David Diggs. Um, I have an African-American playing, you know, one of the housekeepers in a movie. 
King Triton is going to be played by the phenomenal Javier Bardem, but Prince Eric in the movie is going to be played by Jonah Howard King, who is a white guy. And a couple of days ago, Maddie Ziegler, who was in the, you know, starring in um, Snow, starring in West Side Story, um, as Maria, the role that was originated by Natalie Wood, who was white and played the character in Brown Face. You know, Maddie Ziegler is actually a, um, you know, Latina. Um, there was obviously like a change because um, of, you know, again, the this, this is the whole point of the segment. Like these movies are trying to be progressive and kind of move with today's time, which I find ironic because, you know, these things are like fairy tales that were written, you know, in the 17, 1800s, some even older than that. And they were basically a reflection of the time and they had themes that reflected the time. Um, but they're making these movies set in that time, but with 21st century thinking. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of, it creates like an ironic, you know, the plot, you know, the whole idea of the thing is like kind of ironic because you're trying to go to these olden, olden times with like today's, you know, way of thinking and progress. So essentially, like, you know, the thing with Snow White is that Prince Charming um, essentially um, kisses Snow White against her will, you know, in order to wake her up, you know, from this, you know, I don't know, was she dead or in a coma? I don't remember, but, you know, she was incapacitated and he kissed her and she awoke in. So there was a lot of conversation, you know, with today's standards that, oh, uh, it wasn't consensual so no matter if he saved you know he he brought her back to life but it wasn't consensual um so they've changed it up where you know the huntsman or prince charming so um aptly named wouldn't be the male lead but they've announced that it will have a male lead, male lead and it's going to be played by andrew burnap who is white also so it got me to thinking, and I just find it ironic that all of these movies, they're meant to be so progressive and forward thinking, but it still has maintained a theme that's been in um, storytelling since the beginning of time, where there's this white prince or this idea that a white guy is the prize. So... You know, I find it ironic, and I'm going to preface this by saying, you know, f- full disclosure, I'm, you know, I always, when these things happen, you know, I think to myself, I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I shouldn't get so worked up about this stuff because these things aren't made for me. They're made, you know, they're being made for children. But at the same time, I have to really think hard about this because I'm like, what the hell? Like, can a black man be the prince or the, the the love interest in these stories since we're all like forward thinking could a latin man be the prince an asian man could somebody else but a white man be so it got me to thinking that perhaps like you know they're probably including um more people in the decision making processes of these films um 
but they're either not picking the right people or those people don't have a big enough say because you know this white prince is like enduring and like i said you know a lot of these movies i um you know i rationalize you know i kind of first of all have to catch myself and be like yeah like these things are made for for children but at the same time i'm like i have a you know kid brother you know who might want to see this movie i have a nephew who both are black and i'm just like you know how come they keep making these movies where you know there's a white guy that's surprised but they don't never really make the you know any movies really for these kids to be like yeah you could be a prince too you know they're doing this thing where like girls could be of all races um and ethnicities can be princesses which is great but i think you know we also got to do that for the boys and i just i just find it incredible that true all of this progress that we've made where we're like you know diversity and representation matters in media that it really hasn't like rung true for um anybody but you know uh girls of color and it hasn't really translated for like guys of color and i'm just hoping to see how forward you know and you know we've talked about the bachelor and how you know earlier last year you know we're for 20 years up until um they chose the season we were discussing you know they kept on throwing a white guy in the in the in the in the thing um as the bachelor and on the other show the bachelorette um all of these women were picking white guys even the few african american or afro latina bachelorettes that they had all picked white men so i'm just like what is the message like you're trying to portray here that and I, I think it is that white men are the prize so you know it's kind of peculiar and as i said you know if you really break down um and listen to what i've said like perhaps you could find um you know you can see where i'm coming from and on all this uh, you might sound like oh maybe i sound you know insecure uh and maybe i do but i mean you know the facts is all there i'm like they've put out all these movies and it's like oh they're gonna have snow white and she's gonna be a latina girl but putting over the white guy you know little mermaid it's gonna be great chloe's awesome she has such a great voice she's so talented putting over the white guy and I, you know i just want to see like you know some brothers um i love to see some latino brothers and asian um middle eastern indian you know all of these guys being represented in media um yeah and uh coming up up next we're gonna have mike and we're gonna chop it up on euphoria episode two so stay tuned all right Shug. uh how you been Shug? um euphoria episode two uh this week i enjoyed it uh, i got a lot to talk about it man what, what'd you feel about it right away Oh, the episode, it was kind of like the letter V. Like, it started off, like, 100 miles per hour first, like, yeah. 10 minutes. Um, The middle part of it was kind of, like, you know, very slow pace. And then the last, like, 10 to 20 minutes of it was going back at 100 miles per hour. So, yeah, it was like a very, it, it was a mixture of, of feelings. I had a lot of, you know, really good parts in it. A lot of um, 
um plot i feel like even like the down moments perhaps it's you know there were things you could kind of overlook but would probably be important later on i thought it was like uh if i don't want to i don't want to cut you off but i thought this was like you said last week you said this was like the, one of the, the best like first episodes you saw like of a season i remember you think i think you said that this mm-hmm. was like a very strong episode too like um i hadn't seen it before where it's like uh I'm gonna get into it more, but uh, you know, I saw so many things being like set up for like the next potential seasons, not even just this season or the next couple episodes. Um, like episode one was kind of like a preamble to like what's gonna happen. And I love the whole idea. Like last episode was New Year's New Year's Eve, and then it starts off and it's New Year's Day. And um We'll talk about like each whatever characters that uh, you you know that hit, hit you the most this this episode because we, we also saw more with uh, all the characters because like last episode they were kind of missing a couple of the key characters, uh, but just right off the bat you know because I usually don't even care about like names of episodes or like the uh, synopsis and stuff I don't, I just steer clear of that uh, and I remember like season one every every um, every episode was named after like a hip hop or like rap uh, song. Remember it was like, you did that yeah. Bonnie and Clyde 03. So I start out of touch mm-hmm. and I'm like, out of touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then oh, I, I went back to the episode. Out of touch. Yeah. You know, I'm at this point. <laughs> in like in 2019, the summer of 2019, where we worked that like they had, a, they had an 80s or whatever like a summer playlist and it was the same thing every day <laughs> so like three times a day mm-hmm. out of touch with the, well, the you know, I love 80s, 80s music so i was the one ordered like every time my shift started i would change the playlist to the oh, yeah. 80s ones the 80s ones so that's why i was playing every day i saw hollow notes five times in person so hey you almost want to drop that but anyway so i went backwards for episode one i didn't know the name of it um apparently it was uh a uh bob dylan song from like the early 90s but i didn't know it the ironic thing is in my building people trash out cds and i, I was just flipping through them i was like a jerky boy so it was like weird like rock stuff from like the 90s and stuff then i saw the album it was the same sex song from like the early 90s so i was like tripping out because it was like the night after i watched the episode um but yeah you know like episode one they had an awesome cold open that really didn't have much to do with like other characters. It was just Fez and like how, how he met, you know, his like adopted brother uh, or whatever word you want to use, Ashtray. But this cold open was different uh, before the whole thing. Uh, of course, every episode really kind of starts off with really like, talking about like different characters, what, like she knows about them more, like very, very um, book, book wise, you know what I mean? Like, like, mm-hmm. like it's like a narrative, you know? And she's talking about Nate, like uh, Nate's character. Um, he's been kind of, he's like kind of like a, I don't know, I don't want to say like an, it's an antagonist, whatever. But from that, they gave you, they gave him a little uh, human, they uh, humanized him a little bit. And uh, like I said last time, if you guys checked it out, episode one of season two, I said the theme was sex and violence. That cold open before the title, you know, Euphoria came up. It was like pleasure and pain. It was like, uh, they showed so, I, I saw shit I never saw on TV before. They showed some wild shit, right? 
Um, mm -hmm. but it was like, you know, it was like passion and like pain and like sex and violence. Like they, they, I think that's the theme going forward with this. Well, at least now, um, like I always thought about this too. Like you have like, you know, someone giving birth, like I guess it's in his head, whatever, but someone giving birth and you hear a baby crying and shit. And, um, that's like, you know, that you have a baby through pleasure and then you have the pain thing later, which is a very biblical thing or just a very human thing. And it ends with uh, Nate smiling. And I thought about it. I was like, when New Year's Eve, you know, he got cracked by uh, Fez or whatever. And I was like, it was like a baptism by blood or whatever, where I think he woke up and he changed. And there's so many things in this episode where I'm going to, I'll tell you where, uh, you know, they, they really, um, it's very subtle, but like, he seems like different now. I think his, his arc is going to be like, he's going to be trying to like repair all the shit he did. Uh, would you, would you, uh, did you see that at all? Do, uh, do you agree with that at all? Like you'd think that going off of like the last scene, the final scene in it, you know, with him as dad. Yeah. Where he like, he confronted his dad. Yeah. Uh, also, there, there there's a huge scene from season episode one where he's in the car. Well, he's you know he he picks up a very vulnerable doe and he's like a fucking uh, predator. Brings her into the car, ha has has his way with her in the, in the bathroom, which is another thing. Bathroom is a big thing of uh, tubs at least. Um, but in this episode, he like apologizes to her and he's like, "I want to make this work. I apologize and stuff like that." Or I you know like I should stay away from you. Like I'm I'm not good. Whatever. But they still, of course, they still bang, you know, mm -hmm. and it's where do they bang in a, a house being constructed? It was like a freaking it was just the walls like it yeah. was like a uh, and I thought maybe it's like starting over uh, building like a foundation. So this is this is a very good show. I don't mm -hmm. know why people, a lot of people are digging this shit, but uh, yeah, yeah but but, Nate, as... that's pretty much it for Nate for me. Yeah, as far as, like, Nate's concern, I, you know, his concern for Cassie, I don't know if it's, like, genuine concern or it's, like, self-preservation. Because yeah. he does say, like, you can't send me stuff like this because, you know, like, Maddie will go through my phone and find this. Like, don't put it in, mm. into writing. Um, And he says to her, like, if she finds out, she will spend her life trying to kill me. But if she finds out, like, she will literally kill you. And it goes through this whole montage of, like, Maddie just being, like, violent um, and just, you know, beating up people and stuff like that. So I don't know if it's, like, you know, going off of, like, the first scene in the episode where... Oh. Yeah. The first scene in an episode where they're kind of like, oh, like, I want her to have my baby. I want to start a family with you and all that shit. Um, and, you know, it's like such a full fantasy for Nate because it's like he's, you know, with Cassie. She's having his baby and his dad shows up and like, you know, his dad tries to overshadow him and he like has a heart attack and just dies. So like it's 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 like in his mind that's like his perfect like that that's that's fantasy for him that's like his ultimate fantasy to be you know with Cassie and oh. also for his dad to just keel over and die I don't know what like Nate like you say like he's the antagonist and you've seen him do a lot of vile and you know sinister things on this show 
So it's like you always have to, you know, you always have to 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 like second guess everything that he did he does like is there some kind of like secret agenda is there like mm-hmm. is he does he genuinely care for someone which we've never seen or is he doing it as a means to you know for his own benefit i mean we've have seen uh little moments where he does care about other people like he clearly does care for his mother because we've seen someone you know he kept you know, the vile things that his father has done from his mom. We saw that all throughout the first season. And then the, you know, in this season, when his father confronts him after um, his father basically uh, confronts Fez at Fez's shop, um, Mm -hmm. the first thing he does is he tells him, like, okay, if you want to have this conversation, let's go in this room. And let's close this door because I don't think you want mom to hear, you know, about all the, you know, fucked up shit that you've been doing. Right. Yeah. Um, the whole like alternative motives, you know, like it's kind of like, is this just another, um, I hate to bring up like a comedy show, like we love always on it. Is it like just a work or is it just like a thing for him to like make himself feel better, Nate? You know, like where it's like, okay, I'm doing this because it will clean my, it will cleanse me. I don't I still don't give a shit but you know we will, we will see because I know a lot of people that like when they try to like reform themselves like it's a very very selfish uh yeah and, you know just going back with um the cold open man that was so symbolic uh the symbolism and shit where they had or not symbolic, just very very artsy and I was like damn this is good shit. this is great they had um uh yeah Cassie right Cassie was like in the back of a uh I mean, of course, they have like her on top of a bear skin rug. And again, that's my theme of sex and violence where it's like you kill the bear, but it's the most feminine, beautiful, you know, like a creature, like a naked woman, whatever. And then you have her in the back of a pickup truck and then it, it rotates. It's a crazy cool camera thing. And then she's in the back of, she's in the bed. And it's just like very, very, you don't see that much often anymore, but it's very, very artsy and very, you know, some, you know, symbolism and just, uh, which is great. This is one of the things I'm really. Uh, it was like you know probably I mean? like, except for, I think the episode where, um, actually it's only like two other times I actually seen, you know, because the 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 um the tone like the, the tone of the show. As far as like the color, the color and the brightness is very like mm-hmm. drab, and the only other times I've seen it really like bright, was in the first episode when you know rue is like talking about you know her life um before her father died and it was like really bright and then also the other time that i seen it really bright was also uh in the episode i don't i can't remember if it was one of the the specials um from last year but where she was kind of like fantasizing about her life with like Jules. Mm-hmm. That was like, you know, and then also this fantasy that this fantasy that Nate had where he's happy and he's living his life with Jules and his dad kills over and has a heart attack. Those were the only time I've seen it really like bright every time it's like very drab. The, the, the screen, it looks very like drab and very like gritty. Mm. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, 
you know, I thought about that, you know, after we're out, after the fact, I was like, all right, let me think about this episode. Uh, Jules, you would think, you know, I'm coming from a, with a cis, I'm a cis white man, but I'm saying Jules character is the most wholesome character in this whole show. Have you noticed that? She seems to have, I know that she has issues with like family, but like she seems to have the most like stable domestic life. And um, it's always like very innocent shit. Like, um, uh, you know, you know, Rue, whatever, like she's on her bike. Bicycle is a very, very, um, you know, like wholesome thing. Like, oh, I'm riding my bike, whatever. Mm. And she seems to be like a refuge from all this like other crazy shit, you know, like the drugs and shit. Uh, they go bowling at one point. It's like bowling seems such a like a fucking, when you're 12 years old, you go on your first date, you know, or 13, you know, like you go bowling. And um, I don't know. I, that, that's one of the things where like, I think, you know, uh, you know they, they did the two specials last year. Mm-hmm. I think they haven't really explored Jules' storyline, which is okay because you know we're, we're getting a lot of other ones. Episode one, we didn't see Cat really. Oh, and you mean this, this episode, season? This yeah, season yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, so, so Juliet, I'm saying this season so far, Jules has only been in uh, seen really through real at the uh, again, like you like you said, um, it's very you know, dark and dreary and stuff, but. Uh, I mentioned on the other episode where it's uh, everyone, you know, it was a crazy scene and it was very photogenic and very um, picturesque. And then they like, she's like this, she, uh, she is Rue's like domestic, you know, like, or whatever, a savior or whatever. I don't know. I don't want to get to, uh, you know, whatever, but she's like the innocent stuff, which is normally you'd be like, Oh my God, you're like a trans woman. Oh my God. Like that's, that's very, uh, um, you know, alternative the words and stuff like that, but she seems the most wholesome and like, yeah, someone you can be with uh but yeah but we they didn't really have cat on in episode one and she had a good arc in season uh season one um i something i agree with like too much like overindulgence with like virtual like your social media and like uh now we have you know only fans and shit but that was what you think about that that was really cool she had this whole thing where she had like multiple like ideal women personalities yeah. like talking to her and she was like freaking out well, I think, like, the middle of the episode, you know, there were, like, two really, like, to me, like, really, like, adorable or cute scenes I've seen in this episode. Um, I'll talk about the other one um, towards, you know, later on. But, you know, since you talked about the bowl and I'll talk about the first one, um, you know, Jules and Maddie sitting out on the curb and they're talking. Um they're talking and you know maddie says to jules you know i think i'm gonna end up i'm going to get back with nate and jules is like why would you do that and like maddie says something along the lines like i'm just supposed to and i think the the theme in the middle of the episode and you know cat and maddie they're kind of best friends, but they're basically kind of going through the same thing where, where they're struggling with loving themselves. And I think where Mari deals with that by lashing out at other people, like Kat deals with it with lashing out at herself, you know, which is why like um, Ethan, you know, he's like the perfect boyfriend and he's loving and he's caring and stuff like that. Like it isn't, you know, she tries to write down like pros and cons because she feels like <laughs> she shouldn't be with him and she's trying to find things wrong with him and she couldn't find anything wrong with him. 
And then she kind of realizes that, you know, in that fantasy sequence where all of these different social media accounts is telling her love herself, love herself, love herself. And they're like, basically like chanting it at her, you know, the same way, like, you know, Cersei in Game of Thrones is walking down the street, <laughs> you know, shame, yeah. shame, shame. It's like, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. And she's like, I can't, you know, and I, I think that's the issue with, with her where she can't love herself, like, she doesn't love herself, so she finds it, like, really, really incredulous that somebody would, like, be loving and affectionate towards her. And with Maddie, like, she sees that, you know, and they make reference to it about, you know, stop bragging about your, you know, to, to cat, stop, you know, could you guys, could you, you know, she says it, like, jokingly, could you guys, sh- like, you know, jokingly to cat, but I think half-jokingly to herself because, she realizes, you know, that's what she wants in a guy for somebody to genuinely be like, like want her, but um, she isn't going to get that. But she says to her, like, stop showing off. Like you have like the perfect boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera. All the while, like Kat to herself is like, yeah, I have the perfect boyfriend, but why do I have the perfect boyfriend? Like, you know? Like it's it's mm-hmm. just like incredible, and it's, I I think it's like a theme of like, you know, loving yourself, and I think both you know they use cat very um obviously, but they use Maddie like not so much like subtly because you know they had that scene where she's on the phone with um I forgot exactly who she was on the phone with, but she's like in a pool in like the Hollywood Hills. And I was Hell sitting yeah. there talking to him. I was a babysitter, like, yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, like, whose house is that she's in? Because I do remember, like, she, her mom was, like, you know, a, a, a domestic, like, a, a cleaning lady. So, and then I see this kid, and I'm like, who the hell is this kid? Like, is it mm. her little brother? And then I, you know, they they pan out, and, you know, they, they go on to show that she's actually, like, the babysitter for a wealthy couple, and she spends time wearing um the mother who's played by minka kelly because you know we oh, did hear news that minka kelly was joining the cast and you know they never really said like you, you know they never disclosed what yeah. her role was but you know i think we've seen her in previews so there's going to be some kind of relationship formed with maddie i don't know what kind of relationship it will be um but you know that's something to keep an eye on again this is why i say like the middle of the episode, it seemed kind of drab and kind of like, you know, the pace was kind of, you know, not captivating, but there's things that probably were, you know, you know, seeds put in the dirt for, you know, future episodes. But yeah, like, what do you think about that, that part about like loving yourself? Yeah, love yourself, going back to Cat. You may, well, first off, you mentioned Game of Thrones, shame, shame. I couldn't help. When Cat's Fantasy came up, you know, it was like a Game of Thrones thing. Yeah. I was like, I do I need that? It was mm-hmm. like, the, I was like, come on, come on. But I like this character. Though. I, for a while, I was kind of like, yeah. But like, it's kind of like the whole thing. It's been going on. Matrix just came out again, the new one. For like 25 years, people have been living in like virtual like lives or whatever. You know, just like, so back in the day, um, everyone used to complain or like, you know, feminists would complain that like, oh, the ideal body on a magazine and shit, like, oh, you can't be this. So this character cat is like, you know, this Gen Z one where it's like, 
I have to live up to this stuff. I have to have created character. And she was doing the whole like cam shit last season, you know? And mm-hmm. she has this boyfriend that's like a wholesome thing. And he seems checked out where he's like, whatever. Um, there's a shot where he's just like staring off in the space. Um, but then you mentioned, um, I forgot that was Mickey Kelly, but uh, I thought it was captivating still. Cause you know, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not Roger Ebert. I'm just saying, but like, I watched every like scene and I noticed like one thing in like most of the scenes it was that it was a love triangle. Like there was a love triangle going on in every single one. And just, you know, specifically with um, the, you know, the babysitter or like, the house guest or babysitter uh, thing. I was like, that's another one because the husband may be into it. And like he want the wife, that shit happens where the wife is like, oh, hey, young girl, she's down on her luck. You know, not down on her luck, but uh, you mentioned that her, her mom was, uh, like, like you know like a housemate uh cleaner or whatever oh we'll take advantage of her you know the whole thing and she could be like you know she's beautiful young whatever and uh naive yeah i think like uh loving yourself is like it the, for every every like character there's a little group and hey the, you know the, it was the main character and you know it like we said that like it branched out but would rule with like this guy elliot right so like this guy, this character I'm really into, he seems to be like, she says something in her head, like a voiceover, and then he says it in real life. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to be a release for her because like, Jules is very, very, very like, uh, not yeah. not talking down on her, but like, she's, again, she's the escape. She get away from this yeah. like nonsense stuff. Like, this is wholesome. This is like, you know, domestic, you know, when we're, when we're older. But he's like, you know, She's hanging out with him. Of course, like it's like platonic, you know, it's just like yeah. shit. Um, but that's one of the triangles where it's like yeah. he even says, uh, he says, like, we're toxic together. Yeah. And he actually says it. Yeah. You know? And I also like discussed this with some other um fans of the show. And they it kind of fell on deaf ears, but I've speculated with you, another person I, you know, watches the show that you know Rue. It, it's you know how the episode went and how it was shown it it seemed like okay uh like you said it basically picked up you know a couple days after the first episode um and it seemed as though like she basically had forgotten about elliot but it kind of like shows in like a flashback kind of sequence like a real quick flashback sequence that basically for a whole week they'd been hanging out and she just talks about all this like fascinating stuff about Elliot. Um, but she says it's so like, you know, like blase blah. Like she's like, she's convincing herself that like she, she knows she likes him and there's things that she admires about him, but she's trying to convince herself that it's not. So, if, if if that makes sense, like she, I, like I, I was trying to explain to, to to them that there's so many tangible things that she actually likes about Elliot that with Jules, um, I feel like going back to the first season, going back to the specials, that her and Jules were just together because, you know, it was like the first real like human connection she had with another person. Uh, since she left rehab like I've never seen her say like oh this is what I like about Jules that's what I like about Jules like 
Jules essentially yeah. was her like new drug. And I, I, you know, we talked about that last, you know, in, in one of the several times we've talked about the show. So like, did, did you catch that too? Um, as far as our triangle? Yeah, man. I'm, I, 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 I agree. And the way I, always, I've been, I've been saying about it in this, uh, in this conversation, um, Jules is like an escape where it's like a positive escape and who doesn't want it? It's like, she wants the, she wants, um, if she, if she like pulls out and she's with her, then all the, the wall comes down and, you know, like hanging out with, uh, Elliot, it's like, I can stay in my little hole and just keep doing whatever, you know, have, you know, it might escape and stuff. Um, but like she she would uh Rue would have to to confront all the pain and demons and stuff, which is very you know very common you know with people with issues and stuff. I mean, everyone has issues, but some people have they use different ways to deal with it, cope with it. Uh, but with Rue, did you notice that um you know you know like they they explored in episode one, but in episode two we got reintroduced to Ali, and then she's coming mm-hmm. up the stairs. And he's kind of like, he's, you know, obviously as me, I see him and I'm like, all right, he's wearing the, the, you know, the Muslim thing and everything. And I think about religion and stuff and she's like slowly gliding up, you know, like she's like, she's hurt. She's beaten down. Cause like, you know, I've, I've seen people, I know people that have like those things in their escalators for sitting down, like in their houses for older people. Mm-hmm. And she's a 17 year old young girl, her life ahead of her. Yet she chooses to sit down here to glide up to him. And he's like, yo, you know, like he's kind of like, I don't want to use the word savior, but it's like he's like a he's like someone who's trying to help her. Yeah. Uh like she she's looking for something, you know, the, the you know, save herself. But if you know, I maybe at, at the same time, if Jules is someone who can like calm her down, she doesn't want to corrupt her. I don't know. There's, there's so many things going on with these characters mm-hmm. where it's like they all have their own shit, but then yeah, and other people are gonna fuck with them. It, like she, she's with Nate. It's just a history with everyone, you know. So it's kind of like you know. And something to like keep an eye on too, um, because she still she did like discuss like the death of her father with Elliot, and if you notice, it seems like Elliot mm-hmm. uh, lives with like his sister like an older sister uh, you know and perhaps she's like his guardian and you know perhaps he he lost his parents and we'll find out um about that yeah he seems elliot seems um like he has his shit together in a similar way as Jules. i mean his shit, shit together and uh, as much as like a drug addict could have their shit together i guess uh, hey i mean come on there's you know it's 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 not black and white you know it's like He's probably seen some stuff where he's he's like calling uh, Rue out on her shit, um, which might, might not be the most healthiest thing. Mm-hmm. It's obviously very toxic. These are all toxic relationships. The show could be called Toxic, not Euphoria, because uh, Euphoria ends really quickly. Then you deal with the bullshit afterwards. Um, so that open that in of itself is top, toxic. But mm-hmm. um, the one last thing I want to talk about before I, uh, you know we we'll wrap it up. Or second to last thing I want to talk about. So Nate's dad, the last scene. So again, I said this thing ends in a um it ends in like hyperdrive. So you have the scene with him and Cassie 
And he's basically going down on Cassian. He's like, how can you ever look like Maddie in the face? Mm. And I think it had a quick glance at Cassie where she kind of was like, I think she finally was like free um, of like her, you know, her friendship with uh, Maddie or her like loyalty to Maddie because she kind of had a look on her face like, I don't give a fuck. Nate goes back home, and this is after Nate's dad shows up to Fez's shop um, huh. around the same time. Lexi also shows up at, at, at Fez's shop, which is, you know, a, another adorable scene I'm going to get into um, after this. Yes, that's a character we didn't bring up yet because she was like a big part of episode one, um, especially, you know, the climax. Yeah. So he goes back home. And I guess, you know, obviously, oh, it's funny also because Cassie was the one that, you know, finally broke and snitched to Nate's dad that Fez was the one that, you know, attacked Nate. So he shows up to the shop to kind of like, you know, we thought something was going to happen. But in reality, he was basically trying to see who this person was that attacked his son. Mm-hmm. And he goes home and he tries to confront Nate as to why, like, this drug dealer um, attacked him. And Nate, of course, is like, you know, that's none of your business. And it devolves into a conversation about, you know, where Nate says to him, like, yeah, I know all of the stuff that you you do. And uh, it's, you know, if I take this to the cops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that becomes like a whole conversation. And the end of the conversation goes to uh, Nate's dad saying, okay, where's the tape now? Where's the DVD? And Nate is just like quiet and he's just staring. And this was the thing I took from it because Maddie now has a DVD. And I feel as though Nate, always had the dvd and he's always thought about what to do with it but he mm-hmm. realizes you know in the same way like cat sat down there and made like a um pros and cons list you know even though he'd be finally rid of rid of his father and this is another thing um you know the people i talk to also um recognize is that even though he would be rid of his father and the shadow that he casts over him you know, there would be cons to it because if it comes out that your dad's a pedophile, like that stains your whole family's name. It puts your mom through a lot of shit. It, um, you know, the father. Exactly. And he's, you know, also like Nate's dad is kind of like, um, you know, obviously the, the, the housing development that him and Cassie went to was his dad's, um, you know, his, his construction site. Um, and he's very influential in the community. So all of that kind of like it, it, it raises like a higher profile on his family and they'd be left to deal with the aftermath. But now that Maddie has it. It's out of his hands, you know, in like a, a good and a bad way, because it's like, you know, this decision that he was supposed to make, he no longer has to make now on whether or not to put it out. It's in somebody else's hands. 
and he's half hoping that Maddie does something with it, and he's half hoping that she doesn't. And even if she does, even if she does, and you know, he obviously had to. He he basically, if you think about it, like if Maddie does something with the the DVD, right? It basically frees him of the two people. It frees him of the two people in his life that basically hover over him, which are Maddie and which are you know, which is Maddie and his dad, because now he, he uh, he's in love with Cassie. So he'd have to get rid. He'd have to break up with Maddie for you know destroying his family, and he'd be rid of his dad for you know, you know he he'd be rid of his dad. Yeah, uh, just a, a perfect way to bookend this. What I got from episode two, we mentioned like the cold open uh, was very symbolic. Was it real? Is it just like you know things that Nate was thinking about and just you know again my theme for this first two episodes of sex and violence. Uh, you know, pleasure and pain. But you said uh, maybe Nate had it, you know, like there's an, there's a part where he's like, you know, watching the, all the, the cat too, like desensitized from sex, but like why watching porno their whole life and shit. There's a part where he's like watching something and he's like, you know, going at it on himself. And, you know, maybe he did have it the whole time and he just wants like closure on it. Cause like he asked him like, where is it and stuff? But, you know, he wants to fucking just like end it um like it messed him up like we said in episode one he was being weirdo like uh, trying to like find new ways to like get himself like turned on by uh harassing uh the boyfriend and stuff and um again i think he's purging himself of all this stuff all this toxic stuff like he's purging himself who knows if it's actually legitimate or just another way for him to feel good about himself which is sometimes the case um but I, I think that's a good character going forward. And everyone so far really has a great uh, art going forward. Yeah. I hope it's like, I don't hope it's like 10 episodes, man. If it's like eight episodes, okay, cut out the filler. But uh, lucky thing is probably like, you know, the, the, they'll do it soon, soon enough. We don't have to wait two years. Any uh, Anything else about these characters uh, yeah. from this episode? Well, I lied. It was like it's not two cute scenes. It's actually three cute scenes. You know, the one with Maddie and Jules in front of the bowling alley. Other cute, really cute scene. Not a lot of people. It actually was trending on Twitter for a while. Um, Fez and Lexi when uh Lexi went to the store before Nate's dad shows up, and they kind of like you know it's kind of like puppy love and like these are two people that like kind of have like crushes on each other. And their yeah. their little conversation like was, you know, you know, just so. Um, I just thought that was adorable. And the last thing, Ali uh took Rue home because you know he felt like she was in no condition mm-hmm. to ride her bike. And then um he went inside to introduce himself to Rue's mom, and Rue's mom seems like she was attracted to him, so that's you know, something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, like a positive role model and stuff. All right, award of the week for this week, episode 82. I want to give it out to, as far as cult status goes, starred in one of the most classic black exploitation movies that, you know, essentially you know, coined a phrase that um, goes on to this day, the Mac. 
Uh, I want to talk about Max Julian, who actually uh, passed away at the age of 88 a few weeks ago. Uh, not too many people, you know, talked about him. So I wanted to use a word of the week this week to talk about him. And he's primarily known for his role in the Mac. But it should be known that he has some great co-starring roles alongside, you know, such greats as Jack Nicholson and Candace Bergen. Not only that, but he wrote and directed some of his own films, produced some of his own films back in the 70s. Um, but I'm giving him a word of the week for having probably the single, for probably having the single greatest starring roles of a person's career because you know obviously he didn't have many um starring roles after the mac so i wanted to talk about his time as the mac and just like the you know cultural effect of that movie i mean it's not like a widespread mainstream cultural effect it's it's primarily in a black community um you know, we've perhaps outside, you know, we talked about the Scarface poster last week, but, you know, the the poster of the Mac is probably one of them, you know, behind the Scarface, if not rival in the Scar- Scarface poster, you know, was probably posted, you know, throughout the 80s, 90s, and possibly the early 2000s in a lot of young black men's rooms and you know that movie is like culturally significant you know like i said the term the mac um you know it's been around from you know centuries before but you know it really really you know the mac actually in the black vernacular probably got popular from that movie and the movie stars um, of course, Max Julian, but it also includes the great Richard Pryor. Uh, it's a classic film, film, and one of the most famous songs, um, heavily sampled throughout um, rap music. I Choose You by Willie Hutch. You know, everybody knows that from the International Players Anthem, um, amongst other songs. So... Uh, and also, yeah, like a great um cameo in the movie Def Jam's How to Be a Player. So that's significant to me because that movie came out when I was like a little kid. And I used to watch it all the time on cable. Um, and I just remember him as a person. I really understand the significance. Then I went to college, you know, where I like bought the movie on DVD and I used to watch it often and I actually introduced it to a lot of my friends in college um, of various different races and from different different origins and they were really like fascinated with the movie as I was so uh, this week's award week goes to now the late and great Max Julian for having the single greatest uh singular starring role in film history and that has been award of the week all right so you know we'll keep looking on 
um, you know, we'll keep looking forward to the next couple of weeks with the Giants to see who's their GM hire, um, what kind of people he brings in into the front office, and also uh, who the Giants bring on as a head coach. Uh, you know, that person is going to have a very, very tall task. And, you know, in both situa- in both situations, you know, they're, you know, this, this fan base, they're going to have to to build trust. And that's why I keep using the um, Knicks as an example, where it's like, you know, there's this franchise has just been, you know, very untrustworthy and not so great for such a long time. And, you know, now that things are kind of pointing in the right direction and they're doing things differently in a positive way, you know, they've garnered some trust. So that's why, you know, sometimes when people overreact to certain games, um, you know, certain losses, you know, people, you know, other fans kind of ring them back in. Like, you know, as of right now, the Knicks are kind of like hovering around 500, you know, at like 22 and 22 or 22 and 23. And me as a fan, I try not to overreact because I'm like, you know, please remember, like, this team had two 17-win seasons, like, fairly recently. So, you know, for them before, like, February to be having a, you know, 20-some-odd, you know, 20-plus wins, um, there's a lot of seasons left. And, you know, um, the front office has garnered a lot of optimism. So, the same thing with the Giants, you know, they're going to have to uh, build back trust and try to kind of build back their reputation, you know, as a, you know, seven-time NFL champion or I forgot what it is, uh, four-time Super Bowl champion, and they won, I think, like four um, NFL championships pre-Super Bowl, you know, kind of have to get back to that level. Uh, you know, the enduring white prince. It's just interesting to me, like, you know, with all this progress we've made with representation, uh, people aren't taking more chances with having men of color being, you know, the leads in these films. I mean, they just had this show. I mean, I, I, I admittedly didn't watch it, but I know it was popular on um, Bridgerton, where it was kind of set in a classical time and, uh, the main lead was, you know, a young black gentleman and it was highly successful. So, you know, going forward, I'd hope that, you know, anytime they're doing these new interpretations or any brand new um, thing that they uh, include, you know, possibly venture out and have, you know, men of color, you know, black, Latin, uh, Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, Indian, you know, people from all these different, you know, it would be nice for different people to see someone um, be desired that, you know, is, you know, looks like them. Um, So that's like an interesting thing to look forward to. And thanks for listening to our second episode of, you know, us, you know, reacting to the second episode of Euphoria. We'll be back next week with episode three and reaction to that. You know, the thing I worried about following the show is that, you know, perhaps there 
would be an ep- you know you know you don't want to keep following a show because there might be an episode that's not so great but so far euphoria like you know 10 episodes and like two specials in all have been captivating on you know several different levels so i'm pretty sure there's gonna be a lot to talk about in that and please check out all of our new videos on youtube as well as our old ones because we have some stuff on there that you know a lot of people haven't uh watched yet but it's a lot of interesting stuff and keep on listening keep staying tuned and this has been episode 82 of Shug me the Mooney, Shug me the Mooney, Shug me the Mooney.